When David McNeil looks at cockroaches, he probably doesn't see a pest. He sees a potential cyborg. That's because he's looked into how scientists are attempting to control the nasty little critters by strapping little backpacks onto them. The researchers hope that the bugs can help during search and rescue missions. It's just one of the fascinating things that Mr. McNeil tells us about in his new book called Bugged, The Insects Who Rule the World and the People Obsessed with Them. It describes how insects play roles in everything from agriculture to medicine to technology. It's published by St. Martin's Press. I'm very pleased it has brought David McNeil to our show. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I, is it Leo or Leonard? What do you prefer? It's Leonard. Leonard? Okay. <laughs> and uh, if listeners want to get into this conversation, uh, we invite them uh, to give us a call at 212-433-9692. They can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. David, uh, don't most people hate cockroaches? How did researchers at North Carolina State University wind up using them, and how do you control a cockroach? Well, I mean, uh, they get everywhere. Um, as I mean, like people in New York obviously know, they get into the smallest little you know spaces possible, every crack, uh, nook and cranny. Um, and so that, oh, and not only that, but the way they move, the way they walk, their gait is incredible. The speeds they could hit, the obstacles they could go over, make them ideal for um, search and rescue operations, which, you know, the researchers over there, they uh, are going to utilize that in this incredible way by turning them into cyborgs. So what do they do? uh, Okay, so there's a search uh, and rescue mission. You send the cockroaches Mm -hmm. into the through the cracks and what what do what happens uh they you know you could attach a camera to them uh they could detect you know if there's life down there if there are survivors say in like uh, the rubble of aftermath of the earthquake um and you know they could create this like gps map of this uh, of the underground and actually get a way a, a better way of like navigating and finding pockets where people, uh, survivors, could potentially be. And, um, yeah, the person I spoke to, he, he thinks they'll probably uh, be actually deployed in the field, I think, in two to three years, uh, actual field test. Don't the cockroaches eventually overpower the devices that they're carrying? Yeah, there is a bit of a learning curve. They do, after a while, they do uh, realize that they're, you know, those impulses that are being sent to them uh, aren't from their own mind. They're, you know, what happens is the, a wire is sent through the antennae. They actually insert it inside of it. And um, it sends a little, you know, neural impulse that basically it's like steering a horse. You pull one rein, it goes the other way. One way, it goes the other way when you pull the other rein. And you essentially just steer it like an RC car. And um, eventually the cockroaches kind of become aware that I'm not in control of my body, something's wrong, and so they ignore those uh, impulses. Didn't you try to duplicate this in your home? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you actually brought, you brought a cockroach into your house to do this? Yeah, yeah it was a blabberous discoidalis. And, uh, you know, Peter's going to love me for this, but... Um, yeah, you can't tell no, us I, the I, name I, you gave it. <laughs> oh, well, it was... I could, I mean, the middle name, yeah, it's Bill Effing Murray. It's, uh, and they share the same kind of steely eyes. Um, 
But, you know, I uh, I brought it in. I did the procedure, at, you know, according to this one company that sets up this uh, Bluetooth chip that you can actually, you know, you attach electrode to the top of the discoid cockroach, um, plug in the Bluetooth, and you could control it through your iPhone. Um, the experiment didn't go well, but, you know, the cockroach was totally fine, and I decided to just keep it as a pet and, until it died a natural cockroachy death. How long do they live? A couple months, and uh, it wasn't great for dating, but um, that's okay. <laughs> Haven't insects influenced our design of robots? Uh, just, well, they've had 400 million years to evolve, so they're truly complex creatures with mechanisms and um, just ways of traveling that, you know, we can't conceive. I mean, dragonflies. Dragonflies are also going to be deployed for search and rescue. Um they could fly, unlike any plane, forward, uh, forwards, backwards, sideways. They're inc- absolutely incredible, like aerodynamically, like just figuring out how those wings move is a science that we're starting to explore thanks to like 3D scans and uh, in-depth views of them. Um, you know, and there was, I mean, for instance, <laughs> it's pretty incredible. There's this one, it's a, like a fleet-type insect that has... Like, viewed under a microscope, you actually see gears in within its legs uh, that it uses as a spring mechanism. So actual teeth gears that, you know, uh, help it lift off. And bugs have been used to inspire military weapons like micro-air vehicles, MAVs? Yeah. No, absolutely. In fact, uh, Harvard is at the forefront of this um, with their, you know, drone bees that they're creating, which can land on any surface. Um, the only thing that they can't do now is, like, that they have to be tethered to power. However, as technology advances, we will be seeing uh, honeybee drones um, pretty shortly. Why did stuffing a pink grasshopper in 2011 awaken your interest in bugs? Well, and it just speaks to the complexity again. Like, I I was invited by my friend Nick Gutierrez to uh, his lab. And I'm into weird stuff, you know, but I've never pinned an insect before. And part of that is, um, depending on the insect, you actually have to stuff it full of co- uh, cotton, just like a you know, taxidermist might with any animal. Um, So I cut its underbelly with a razor and started to (laughs) pluck away at its innards. And it just, it just revealed how strange and advanced these things are. And, you know, from there, it just, I I began reading insect stories. Um, It was, you know, began attracting my attention and, Eventually, I wrote this uh, little wired piece about Insect Sushi, the startup that did uh, Insect Sushi in London. And that just kind of set off like this idea, like, what is our relationship with insects? Where is it going? And, you know, what was the past like? What's the future? My guest is David McNeil, who has written for Wired and Outside, among other publications, and uh, we're talking about his book, Bugged, The Insects Who Rule the World and the People Obsessed with Them. It's published by St. Martin's Press. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Can we use the word bugs and insects interchangeably? <laughs> yeah, I'm not an entomologist. Uh, that's okay with me. <laughs>
Um, I, I use them I, it, for bug, for the book. I just um, I use bug to be an all encompassing thing to include arachnids, uh, millipedes, centipedes, you know, the whole the whole thing, uh, slugs, all of it. Where does the term bug come from? Isn't it tied to ghosts? Yeah, it. Uh, as far as we know, like that's where it first starts to appear is in uh, you know, like Shakespeare, uh, Hamlet, and um, Hamlet yeah, says, "With oh, such bugs and goblins in my life." Exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and it's tied to the restlessness in our you know while sleeping, which were caused by bed bugs. And they attribute it to ghosts. And um, there's very variations in the way it was spelled. Uh, one was book, I think, which is, there's an umlaut involved in two O's, I think. Um, but, you know, it's basically the root of boogeyman. And if you remember Oogie Boogie from, uh, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas, he was entirely composed of bugs. Mm. Do bugs see well? Not so much. Well, but um, what about flies who <laughs> who have compound eyes? I've always wondered what it's like to see the world through a fly's eye. It's not exactly crystal clear. However, uh, because of the compound eyes, the reaction is incredibly like fast. So when you try and swat one, they can kind of see that coming from a mile away. Um, they mostly use smell to detect their world. So we we suspect they don't see color. Um, some insects do, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, different wavelengths. I think butterflies can see, oh, geez, I forget what the spectrum is like, but, uh, they see a lot more than us. I'm assuming um, bees as well. Yeah, yeah, bees do. Uh, oh, God, the way bees navigate, uh, it's just so impressive. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into that a little bit, but, uh. Well, of course. Well, I mean, there's this wonderful thing called a, that a honeybee does called a waggle dance. And she will uh, go back to her hive and do this figure eight pattern. Now, when she goes down the center, she's, uh, depending on the angle she comes down, she's actually saying which way are, like, say, like bramble flowers in correlation to the sun. So is it 45 degrees away from the sun, uh, 35 degrees, and then she'll waggle, and that will say how many feet. So you get direction and distance, and um, and that's how they, you know, uh, bring pollen back to uh, their hive. And don't ants also have some kind of uh, a language, or some ants? Oh, a variety, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there's this misconception that they're all assigned these tasks. Uh, now, granted, like, they you know, like uh, take a leaf cutter ant, for example, um, ant colony. They do come in different sizes. You have your big soldier ants uh, kind of just patrolling, making sure everything's going well. Uh, you have smaller, you know, worker ants, median worker ants. And um, what they do is they, you know, some species, uh, as they're passing back and forth um, in a line, they'll have these quick antennal taps that are almost like Morse code and communicating like, uh, is there more food? Do we need to clean now? Um, and they just operate in this fascinating way. In fact, I got a real quick. I, I got this opportunity to check out this lab in Brazil, and this man had kept a uh, leafcutter ant colony for 25 years, I believe. So one queen, 25 years, and he had on this table these large clear cylinders 
Now, inside was this fungus. I imagine like a spongy alien egg in a clear glass cylinder. And on top of that was a cover. Now, this fungus is what the ants feed off of. So they'll cut a leaf, turn it into a fungus, and, uh, you know, feed the fungus. But to get the right humidity level, the ants figured out ways to, like, insert pebbles and sticks underneath the top of that cylinder, you know, the glass cylinder, so that the plate was lifted at different angles just so the humidity was perfect and optimal for growth. So wow. these are advanced creatures in, in ways that, you know, again, like 400 million years they've been around. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see the next 400 million. You said that they rely mostly on smell, but you mentioned earlier the cockroaches' antennae. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the antennae, uh, what, are they like radar? Um, they, they, I think the two main functions they serve is like just touch and smell, you know. So the antennae smell? Yeah, they smell through their antenna. Hmm. And also, uh, I always wondered why cockroaches didn't have noses. What's that? (laughs) I said, I always wondered why cockroaches didn't have noses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Although they might be too small. Well, they're they're excellent creatures, I'll tell you. You know, you think cockroaches are dirty, but they're really, uh, keen on, like, cleaning their feet all the time. They're kind of OCD about it. Uh-huh. Now, do we know whether they feel pain? Uh, they don't. Um, they don't detect... Let's see. <laughs> we have pain receptors. We, we uh, you know, humans, animals, uh, most animals, um, except insects, uh, can feel pain. Um, but they process it a different way. They... They know something's wrong, but it, it the pain receptors aren't there. So it's not like, ouch, it's just, hey, what's going on? You know, it's, uh, it's a way of survival. We've been, we've been so, hearing... Yeah, no, don't, don't, you know, don't rip off the legs off of, uh, off of a fly or anything. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, yeah, don't get hung up. I mean, like, they're not, you're not destroying someone's life. It's not absolutely painful or anything. Now, we've been hearing a lot about uh, how many animals are going extinct these days. Yeah, uh, right. Do we know about extinction rates of animals, I mean, for insects over the, the course of history? Well, uh, you know, some researchers say that uh, insects surpass any uh, species of, you know, as far as extinction goes. The problem is we don't know until it's too late. Um there could be some clues, some signs, but, you know, insects are tied to plants. And if there's a loss of habitat, there's a loss of that insect. Um, I think there was the Rocky Mountain locust back in the day. They, there was a plague of them. Uh, I think this is the 1800s. And um, within, God, I think it's such a short amount of time, like following the plague, their extinction was they were finished within a couple decades. Uh, there was actually campaigns and posters for uh, capturing Rocky Mountain locusts. And, um, you know, to this day, they are extinct. And they were only revealed, ironically, through global warming when a, a you know, ice cap melted in a mountain and, you know, a bunch of dead locusts, uh, Rocky Mountain locusts, were trapped inside. Um, so yeah, our, our changing environment 
is destroying them. Climate However, change? At the same, I'm sorry? Climate change? Oh, climate, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, however, you know, they they find ways to adapt. It's just, who knows if it's beyond the point of return. Um, a, a quick example, again, you know, monarch butterflies actually migrate earlier now because of climate change. Mm-hmm. They also have the problem where some of the, the plants that they have uh, relied on for laying their eggs have disappeared yeah. in the Midwest. Right. Milkweed. Right. And there's this big conservation effort to plant more milkweed uh, plants, yeah. Why will more carbon in the atmosphere bu- uh, cause bugs to eat more crops? Well, and that's the thing. It's like they will overeat, they'll like reduce you know, the plant that they depend on. And then, you know, they'll, they'll birth more generations, but they won't have anything to feed on because, like, you know, it's just not growing anymore. And then um, they have to migrate or move elsewhere, uh, change elevation, uh, shift over a migratory pattern if necessary, up or down, you know, uh, latitude. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit detrimental, and uh, that's why it's, if you want a good indicator, a bioindicator of how an environment is doing, look towards bugs, look towards insects, you know, check an insect collection back from 30 years and see if those insects are found in the same area still. And we'll talk a bit more about that when we talk about bees later. But right now we have to take a little break. My guest is David McNeil. His book, Bugged. The Insects Who Rule the World and the People Obsessed with Them from St. Martin's Press. It's our topic on today's Please Explain segment. And when we come back, we'll also be taking listener calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Stay with us for more. And we are back with uh, a discussion of bugs on today's Please Explain segment with David McNeil, who's written a book called Bugged, The Insects Who Rule the World and the People Obsessed with Them. It's published by St. Martin's Press. We're taking your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Stephanie from Hastings, you're on the air. Hi, Leonard. Um, early in the 90s, I was walking along Fifth Avenue, and I found several beautiful art magazines in the trash. I was a young adult. I thought they were beautiful. I took them home. Long story short, I discovered these little tiny bugs in them. I threw them all out. Uh, I moved to Westchester, and uh, to this day, I find similar little bugs in my cookbooks, and I'm wondering, could it be from that initial exposure? Um or they're just bugs yeah. that that uh, live in old paper. Yes, it's that type well, of bug. It, it. I mean, do you find any? I mean, they're dead bugs, right? Dead. Are they yeah, dead, are or are they moving bugs? around? Are they dead? Oh no, they're alive. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> do they look like bed bugs to you? No, no, they're not. They're not bed bugs. They're those little oh, bugs that, okay. that you find in books. And I'm just wondering. <laughs> I mean, could this all have come from, you know, that one initial thing back in the 90s, that they're still living, they're, like, migrated to all my books? 
It's it's possible depending on the species. Um, you know, there there's this uh, thing called sigmotasis where they, you know, certain insects enjoy being huddled together and close and like enclosed in spaces like a spine of a book. Um, yeah, it could be from uh, the nineties, but so I, she'd be I carrying recommend... on generation after generation of these bugs oh, yeah. since oh, they don't totally. live very long. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not the the original bugs from the nineties, but it is yeah a generational thing that you're seeing. I recommend getting in touch with a uh, pest control operator, <laughs> and um, you know if it's is it has it you know migra- have they migrated to all of your books or, or is it just a couple that you're finding them in? It's, it's a couple of cookbooks, but um, also yeah. uh, there well, are cracks eat. in the wall by my win- <laughs> the window by my bed, and I noticed on mm-hmm. the wall that it's very similar bugs like crawling on the wall. So um, mm. ignorance is mm. bliss, and I wish I never noticed them, but <laughs> but I did, and I don't know what to do about them. They're they're tiny. Well, uh, they do seem you, to be do coming from any... the cracks in the paint. Oh yeah, no. Well, they they could get into you know very small places. But uh, are you experiencing any any bites or anything like that? It's possible. I mean, I don't really see any on my body, but in the middle of the night when I'm sleeping, you know, I do sometimes have a little pain. But that might be just you know. I mean, I've kind of pushed my bed away from the wall just because I don't want to be anywhere oh, near really? these. Well, and have you uh, spoken to a, a pest control operator? Before? I did have somebody come to the house. He told me to spray Windex on the walls. I mean, he wasn't there for this issue, but while he was in my house, I I thought I would, you know, talk to him about it. Yeah, well, I hope you resolve the problem, Stephanie. But there are a lot of other things I'd love to talk about with you, uh, uh, David. Uh, What would the lack of bugs breaking down animal waste mean to agriculture? Uh, Oh, man. Um, So we know insects are are these fantastic uh, pollinators. I mean, like, we need them, absolutely need them, but we need them more to break down uh, dead things, uh, way to put it, and also, you know, just fecal material. Um, you know, dung beetles are, yeah, they're, they're great at this. And then um, we put worms into our compost, but you write about uh, what happened in Australia 50 years ago. What did that teach us uh, yeah. about what life would be like without bugs that can break down waste? <laughs> well... Yeah, so Australia, this uh, wonderful continent with a bunch of, you know, species coming over from across the world, um, experienced this terrible, like, fly epidemic. I mean, pests just everywhere. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Aussie salute, but it's basically, you know, wiping away flies from your, you know, face just uh, back and forth. Um, So this was a an issue for years because you'd have all these dung pats all across the land but no insect to break it down and you need dung beetles however they weren't introduced to the area uh just like with the cows should have come the dung beetles um and so you know what they do is uh, they just break it down rapidly um roll it into a ball and yeah, so they were introduced by a scientist, like, I think about 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the Aussie salute is a dying custom. They're, and they're Australia no longer... doesn't smell as bad. 
yeah, that's right. And uh, honestly, like, if insects did not exist, the, the world would smell awful. I mean, you're talking about dead animals, dead humans, like, just all of that gathered up together, nothing to decompose it, um, which was, I mean, not to get gross or anything, it was something else to see when I went to a Texas body farm and uh, saw maggots working firsthand. Zohara, you're on the air. Zohara from Brooklyn. Hello? Yes. I can't tell her. Hello, Zahara. Go on the air. You're on the air. Okay, well, we're having real problems there. I oh. think Zahara wanted to ask about okay. bugs uh, and medicine. Uh, oh, okay. Well, there, there's a wide range of things. Can bugs be used to create medicines? And also, uh, haven't leeches been uh, used again recently <laughs> in some instances? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, leeches, oh boy, uh, that's an interesting story there. Um, you know, they've been used, there was a time where leeches were in uh, short supply. This is, you know, Victorian age where you had leech jars. Women would use it, you know, as a way of, like, keeping their face nice and smooth, clean, everything, all that. Um, and now, today, we're actually bringing back leeches for, like, after plastic surgery, uh, just get the blood flowing, you know, freely and all that. Um, a really quick anecdote, you know, Napoleon actually used leeches. Mm-hmm. To get and, rid of his uh, hemorrhoids. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he did, um, which, which was probably a very... Uh, well, they didn't have Preparation H at the physician. time. Yeah, no, they, they had Preparation Leech, and so, you know, that's that's just what they had to do. And it uh, worked? Which, I I think he, uh, you know, he's a happy guy. Uh, you know, just running, uh, being an emperor is uh, very stressful, so, yeah. But the leeches were used differently uh, in, uh, in the past, uh, because they, it was thought that they took the poisons out of your blood. Yeah, uh, which is kind of a misconception, but um, yeah, they they just get the blood flowing freely, and uh, and again, they're great for plastic surgery. What what is interesting though is like uh, we are using, you know, ant venoms, uh, bee venoms to uh, help with swollen joints, um, and this is these methods go back like. You know, using these extracts from insects, it, it goes back, who knows, hundreds of years, millennia, where, like, you know, some tribes in uh, South America or throughout Central America would actually stick their uh, hands in these trees that had certain ants that would, you know, attack and had this venom that would be released into uh, their bloodstream, and the swollen joints would go away, Um yeah, this is something we're exploring. Uh, you know, there's multiple patents out right now. And uh, we're also looking towards cockroaches for replacements to antibiotics. Um, more impressively, uh, just recently, there's been a couple of human clinical trials done in Australia and the U.S. is uh, with de- Deathstalker uh, scorpion venom. And what, what happens is this venom actually attaches to tumors and combine that venom with this fluorescence, uh, you could now, mid-surgery, like say you're doing a brain surgery on a patient, instead of just using the MRI chart as a map, you could actually look down at the brain and see the points of cancer, the points of tumors, mm. like where they pop up. And it reveals stuff that MRI charts, you know, could not reveal. Let's go to Boris from Jersey City. Hi, you're on the air. 
Hi. Uh, I'm in the spirit of Food Friday. Um, I was in Thailand some time ago, and I tried bugs there. Uh, I mean, eating mm-hmm. bugs. And um, I mean, I find them to be a little bit too much work, but I absolutely loved um, bamboo worms. But, you know, since everybody wants to eat locally, what's the local bugs that are edible? Well, first of all, let's talk about eating insects. In many cultures, uh, that happens in Mexico and uh, in Africa and Asia. Uh, it seems the West is the only place where uh, there's been a kind of resistance to eating bugs. They're a great source of protein, oh, yeah. aren't they? Oh, my God. They're, uh, I, some would say the best. Um, Pure protein. Uh, comparisons have... Oh, yeah, yeah. Comparisons have been made. You know, cows are humvees. Um, insects are bicycles. And, you know, um, the amount of impact that they have on the world as far as raising them is minimal compared, uh, almost non-existent compared to uh, livestock. Aren't people um, farming insects now? More and more every day. And for human consumption, I should say. Uh, you know, we've been farming insects for, you know, reptile food, and etc., but now there are farms popping up through the U.S. I think there's more, there's probably a handful right now that um, they, uh, they use, uh, yeah, human uh, feed. I mean, the, the, the crickets are for human consumption. Um, but I think, you know, it's going back to our version, it's going to be tricky to get the West on board. Uh, but there are companies out there right now like Exo, Chapel, um, chirps, you know, these crickets, tortilla chips, they're, they're introducing the idea. And I think what's really going to solidify it is chefs as they, you know, take these potential, like, new ingredients and incorporate them into wonderful dishes to make something no one's ever tasted before. Well, didn't we go through a similar process when sushi was introduced uh, into yeah. into American cuisine, uh, there was some resistance, but now it's become a norm. Could the same thing happen with eating insects? Even though, uh, as you point out, uh, a book was written in 1885 by Vincent M. Holt uh, yeah. called "Why Not Eat Insects." Didn't catch on then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it did not, because like around that time, our, our version was just really. Oh boy, uh, you know. Uh, pesticides were uh, flourishing. Um, campaigns against insects were just taking the streets. And so, you know, we used to live a bit more amicably with them. But um, over time, this, yeah, absolutely, I, I hate using the word over again, but aversion came about. Um, so, yeah, no, it, the four fifths of the world does what we should be considering. And while it does, the story of entomophagy, which is, you know, the the term for eating insects, it does parallel that of sushi. However, there's a lot, there are a lot of barriers to break down when it comes to insects, which is unfortunate. Um, You know, I tried these uh, locusts in Japan uh, while researching the book, and I was just absolutely floored by it. they, it, they had the, they were cooked with the soy sauce. They had this crunch, but inside they had this bright herbal taste that just doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, the way they process rice leaves was is different from just eating a rice leaf. Now, David, so, we, 
yeah. Well, kind of out of time. Uh, You've convinced me that there is a place for cockroaches (laughs) and a positive place for them. But just one thing, I can see Mm -hmm. no reason for mosquitoes. Yeah. (laughs) Certain species of mosquitoes, but yes, I I agree. Um, You know, there there are campaigns to uh, release genetically modified mosquitoes to reduce uh, our chances of contracting Zika or dengue fever. Can't happen um, too soon for me. Uh, yeah, right. We have run out of time. David McNeil, thank you so much for being on our show. And today's Please Explain. David's book is called Bugged, The Insects Who Rule the World and the People Obsessed with Them. It is published by St. Martin's Press, just out.